Pushkin. Lay it on me, baby. Lay it on me till it gets right under my skin. And the merry mood I'm in makes Niccolo grew out of England's pub rock scene to write some of the smartest songs of the new wave era. His classics, like So It Goes, I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass, and Cruel to Be Kind stand up with any of the best songs of the time. And he's still going. Niccolo's newest EP, Lay It On Me, comes out June 5th and shows he's still the strong songwriter he always was. Something fundamental to me that I can almost taste. Niccolo established himself early by writing and producing one of the UK's early punk singles for The Damned produced Elvis Costello's first five albums, co-founded one of my favorite record labels, Stiff Records, and wrote the classic What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Nick talked to Bruce Hellum about all of this, plus what it was like marrying into Johnny Cash's family, and a hilarious first encounter with Keith Richards. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Nick Lowe from GSI Studios in Brooklyn. This interview was taped while Nick was on tour with Los Straight Jackets. So why don't we start with one of your new songs? Oh, okay, yeah. Last night was the last night of our tour. I've been on tour with the Straight Jackets. So mm-hmm. play us a song that you've uh, recorded with them uh, recently. Okay, this is one. This is called um, Love Starvation. I'll, I'll do my best to do it. Hugging my pillow all alone in a rickety bed Baby, if it's any consolation, the needle's in a red It only hit me when I went by a mirror That's when I saw what was written all over my face I'm suffering love starvation, a very bad case Tell you something about love starvation It's like a prison in your mind You're locked up in disappointment Desperation, you two old friends Make it stop, make it stop If only I could turn back the clock Make it so, make it so Cause I tell you that I can't exist In a world like this Consolation. 
ambition, baby It's got me on the back foot It's put me in a dark and lonely place It's got me never knowing If I'm ever going to start living again Love starvation, baby Tell me the inspiration for that song. Uh, well, I was uh, doing some recording with the Straight Jackets uh, in New in uh, New York City um, last year, and we came back from the studio. We'd had a pretty good day. We came back from the studio, and I just thought we needed a song in that tempo. That would that's that sort of tempo, kind of Bobby Fuller for Richie Valens kind of tempo sort of 60s hully gully beat mm -hmm. you know i could hear them doing it and uh, when i got back to the uk uh, i woke up one morning with this title love starvation which i thought was a really really good title and i and it sort of wrote itself do you write every day is that part of your i i do it's, it's not always any good in fact mainly it's not I, I'm not terribly prolific, but I never stop writing stuff. But I, because I've heard it before, I get impatient with myself because I just, I, I think, oh, I've heard that. Oh, that's no good. Oh, yeah, there's no, oh, more of that old rubbish, is it? And then one day, something will come to mind that I haven't heard before. And, uh, and I'll, I sort of go into a kind of trance, I suppose, and, I, and it might take a week or two, or sometimes it, it goes after a week or two, and I just sort of lose interest in it. Or, but it, if it's any good, it'll come back. But I go into a sort of a trance, and I fiddle around with, uh, I fiddle around with it until I, I, it's suddenly finished, and I think that I've written a cover song. The, one, the ones that I think are good are ones that sound to me like, not actually like an actual song that I've ripped off, but it'll sound like I haven't had anything to do with it. Hmm. And those are the ones that I think are good. If I hear my little tricks and little fancies and things that, that you, you do, if I hear that, I, I, I get real impatient with it and I, I don't like it. It's a very peculiar thing, writing songs, because you can't turn it on, neither can you turn it off. And sometimes you, you it, it, well, when I was younger, I used to, um, I used to really freak if I, if I couldn't write a song, you know, if I hadn't done for a while, I used to get really upset mm -hmm. and then start forcing it, mm -hmm. forcing it out. And that's, that's the worst thing you can possibly do. So it's not forcing it out, but you still work at it. Yeah, working at it is 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 pleasurable, um, okay. but forcing it is is unspeakable. I've, uh, well, I'll give you an example if you like. I'll play you something which is just a real work in progress. It's just something which has has got three okay. bits. It's got three bits to it, and um, and it doesn't really make sense. But there's there's some, there's a few bits and pieces that I I would 
so could be good. It's the song's called "I'm on Your Plane," which is a weird title, like um, "I'm on on Your Level" or something. You mm-hmm. know, but it goes like this: I'm on your plane. All at once, I feel the connection, like we're going in the same direction. around all shabby and thin like something that the cat brought in so lonely was I but darling as you see I'm eating again the clouds are gone and there's the sun up in the sky hey girl I've got a lot to thank you for you bless the day you fetched up at my door God knows it's it's got good and it's gonna get better this is a kind of new love letter you already know I'm on your plane like that it's lovely it's got it's got possibilities but I but it doesn't really sort of make much sense yet mm-hmm. <laughs> So you'll try and come up with a bridge or do you think you've distinct parts that aren't fitting together? I think it, I think the, the actual shape of it, I think the tune is good and the, there's three parts. There's an A, B and a C part and they all seem to, I, w- I probably wouldn't do any, I wouldn't probably wouldn't write an, any another part, but I might juggle, cha- change one of the parts or two of the parts to so they're quite, they're a bit different the second time they come around. That's so you, how I feel with, that one would go. And so you've always got some of those you're working on. Mm. What's your hit rate? Uh, if How many, you say some things you, you just abandon. How many songs would you write before you would have an album's worth, say? Oh, God. I probably, uh, I mean, my songs are all pretty short. So an album's worth is about, 11 or 12 songs, I'd have to write about 30 to get 12 songs. Is that right? That I, that I like. Well, something like that, because I always do a couple of covers, at least a couple of covers on most mm-hmm. of my, my records. When you were writing in the early 70s and you were with Brinsley Schwartz and you, were, you wrote a lot of the songs that became your hits later on, was writing the same back then for you? It was... It was um, when I hear that that the uh, early songs I I wrote, I mean, I, I can really hear a kid, you know, start, start, starting to feel his way. You know, my my the way I always explain it is that, you know, we figured out that in order to have any staying power, we had to learn how to write songs. So I, a couple of us were into it, you know, and uh, you start off writing your heroes. You know, catalog, and then, and it's very, very obvious that they, you know, where it's come from, and then you'll move on to someone else and rewrite their catalog, and and someone else after that, and someone else after that, until uh, one day you'll be writing your latest heroes uh, catalog, but you'll put a bit of the first person and a couple of bits from the third, and 
and suddenly you'll find that it's not exactly like your latest hero. It's got something else about it because you put these other influences in. And that's the way it goes and goes and goes until suddenly you've got your own recipe, you know, like a palette. Who was that first hero for you, the one you were uh, imitating? Well, I think at the time I, would, I joined my first band and I really got, you know, started to take it seriously, I think it was probably the band, I think. I loved, I loved the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, people like that. You know, no, no, no one too obscure, you know, they're all pretty mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only, again, when I got older, you know, I started hearing. I, I, I mean, I'd been a mod when, when I was a teenager. And so, um, and... Uh, now we should explain, what, what does that mean that you're... Oh, uh, well, it was a sort of youth movement in the 60s. And they, they, um, they, were, they had a, a sort of fashion, you know, they, they liked wearing the right clothes and things. We used to ride on scooters, you know, on uh, uh, little Vespers and Lambrettas. And uh, the music they listened to was all uh, American R&B, music, like Motown and Stax stuff from uh, from memphis and uh, scar scar and blue beat and reggae music and so i'd been a, i'd been a mod so i thought that i knew quite a lot about cool music um you know how wrong i was <laughs> but uh, but you know for a 17 year old you know I, I i was pretty you know i i knew who uh, you know solomon burke was and johnny taylor and people like that but I wasn't writing like like that. That it, I thought that was really really hard to do, mm-hmm. to write those kind of songs, which is strange because they're simple. They're really simple, and it's very those. That's the hardest stuff to do. Is is some a real simple direct message? What was the first country music you liked? Because oh, that's a big influence on you. Yeah, it is. Well, um, that's that's much easier to to answer. My my um, my father was in the uh, RAF and uh, when I was a kid I lived in the Middle East or wherever he was stationed you know in the Middle East or Germany you know we were Cyprus uh, Jordan and um, they had uh, I did a lot of listening to records then the family record collection and uh, my mother was very musical and she had the you know Sinatra and, uh, and Nat King Cole, and you know the, the the stuff South Pacific and Guys and Dolls and all that stuff. You know soundtracks. People forget back then the soundtracks and Broadway shows. Yeah, where all that. I everybody loved had the all. King and I. The and King and I, absolutely. And uh, so I loved all these records. But she had in her collection very bizarrely, and she didn't know. And when I got older, I asked her, "Where did you get those from?" She had two ten-inch Tennessee Ernie Ford records i just thought this is the greatest thing i'd ever heard he had this fantastic voice you know which was like a disney like a disney cartoon mm-hmm. character like i'm the king of the swingers you know like louis uh, was it i forgot was it louis prima did did that but he had this beautiful sort of baritone voice but it wasn't just that that he that his his records were so swinging i didn't know it was country music i could tell it was sort of some sort of hillbilly thing going on there but they were playing with all these jazz chords in and i i didn't i didn't understand that that was the sort of california version of country and western music i'd never heard anything like this and it sounded like 
that Tennessee, in my seven-year-old mind, something like Tennessee Ernie was really cool. I could see that because of what the clothes he was wearing on the covers of these records. What, you know? what was he wearing? California casual pool wear. Right. He was never a. He was never a cowboy. He was. He, if he did, it was a sort of stuff that real cowboys didn't quite wear. You know, like a tasseled, tailored, tasseled uh, uh, suede jacket or yeah. something like that. Might have got himself beaten up on the ranch. It might have done, but, yeah. but he looked a lot, a lot so tassels. cool. He yeah. just he looked so cool. But also, it sounded to me like his mates who were playing on this record were also really cool. Which so they made each other sound cool because they were hanging out with Tennessee, and obviously were doing what he said. And uh, but Tennessee was cool enough to know these people who could make this <laughs> fantastic noise. So that's the first thing I heard that really really blew my mind i thought and it was so swinging and then what your first instrument was was it a guitar well i had a little plastic um sort of ukulele that my uh, my grandma bought me and then i got a, another uh, uh, that i sat on that i think or some somebody did uh, anyway but i got another one it was like a banjo version same sort of thing but it had an amazing little gadget that you clipped onto the uh, neck came separate and you you just you you had elastic bands or something and it had push buttons on it and each where each button was it had a little cord window but you pressed the buttons down and it made under underneath it pressed the strings down in the right place so you effectively just playing the so it gave me an ear for for how you know which chords would go with especially with simple songs like Lonnie Donegan was the guy that from my generation was the fellow that we all copied because he he played very simple songs they were they were sort of lead belly songs and you know work songs and folk songs really but they had this great swinging um swinging drive to them because they were jazz players who played on his records but they were very simple and very easy to learn and it wasn't too long before I thought, this is a bit uncool pressing the buttons down. You know, I, I'm going to figure out where my fingers actually go, you know. How then did it become your dream to become a musician from pressing a button on a plastic guitar? Well, I didn't really want to, to become a musician more than I wanted to be famous. That, that, that was uh, my first drive and have lots of people telling me I was marvellous. Mm -hmm. I didn't realise there was going to be any, any work involved in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and You thought just the hair. This and, is enough. Yeah, I had the hair. People have gone very that was far a start. Like this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, and, I, and being, you know, uh, any kind of believing that, that I was any kind of artist was far from my, uh, my, my thoughts. And, and and still is really, you know. I, I think of myself really as a as a, a as an artisan, sort of more than an artist. You know, I make artistic decisions, but I think I'm a hack, really, and and proud of it. You know, I, I'll I'll have a go at doing anything. You know, jingles. You know, I'll have a I'll have a shot at anything. But um, I make I, I make sort of artistic decisions along the way. I, re I really, but and then how did that start for you? Did you drop out of school? Were you? Um, I did. I went to quite a good school actually, but I, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't very good academically gifted. I had a facility to, uh, with for, for English and writing, and I thought I might uh, be a, a, a journalist actually. And uh, I can remember these, well, these guys who were 
had definitely been in the war, in the Second World War, war correspondents. You know, they, they'd come out to these trouble spots and they'd come and stay with us because my dad, who was station commander of these places, he was quite high up, um, would, would make sure they had the right accreditations and papers and all that stuff, uh, passes, you know, to go to these areas. And they used to stay at the house. And I really liked these guys. You know, there was something about them. I liked the way they drank and smoked, you know, and the way they talked and laughed with each other, easy sort of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Also, their clothes as well. I loved their, their clothes that, that, that they had. Well, very well worn, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I thought I wanted to be one of those people. And I got this job at a, at a paper as editorial assistant, making tea, sweeping up, filing copy. Um, occasionally, they'd give me a, a, a movie at the local flea pit. I'd, get the, I'd go down and review it. Uh, it was a real break for someone like me, you know, to, to get into. And um, I'd been there about six months, I suppose, and I realised that uh, I didn't have what it took. It, they, the, the, these fellows were really fantastic. It was only a local paper, mm-hmm. but they were really good. And I realized that I didn't really have what it took to to do that. My dreams of being in a in a foxhole with a mud spattered Remington, you know, wearing a steel helmet with a cigar stub clamped in my teeth, you know, knocking out the copy, you know, with the incoming incoming uh, <laughs> uh, was just going to was just really ridiculous, you know, it was never going to happen. And then I got a call from Brinsley Schwartz, who said come and join my band. Mm-hmm. And you do, you do him from school? From school. I went to school with him, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you started playing. Uh, when did the writing start? Um, fairly, fairly soon after I, after I joined. Again, I, I really messed things up for them, really, because when I joined, when I joined the group, they, they, were, uh, they were on Parlophone, which was the Beatles label. In those days, anyone really who could knock out two or three chords and had a kit of drums got a record deal it was very 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 easy to get a record deal but still with parlophone that was something else that was the beatles label and they 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 got this deal they didn't play on their own records which was very common then they had session people playing on the comms and they just, on the on the record but they um they they sang and when i joined the group uh you know, I figured that I was way more hip than than they were, and I said, "We can't have this. We've got to play on our own records." You know this, and actually, the, the records that they did with the session men playing were sounded fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you didn't know about the monkeys back then. You thought no, they played no, their no, own no, instruments, no. exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I said, "No, no, we've got to we've got to play our own stuff." And uh, so then. We've we've very soon got fired as soon as we <laughs> as soon as we uh, started playing on our own records. I thought after the Beatles, it was understood that musicians had to play on their own records. That was part of their appeal. Well, that that didn't change. Well, the Beatles were, you know, the, uh, this was nineteen sixty eight when I when I joined them. Um, the Beatles would, hadn't released the, their White Album that then. They were still actually going, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was st- it was a. It was a huge scandal when this story broke that not that our group had session men, but that any that most pop groups mm-hmm. had session people playing on their records. 
It was, you know, people couldn't believe it. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with more of Bruce's conversation with Nick Lowe. But you you had a period where you wrote a lot of sort of your what would later become big hits for you. You wrote So uh, It Goes and Oh, that was really much later. The, oh, okay. the, the first the first thing I wrote which was really uh good was was a well, was an original idea, as I've as I've said before, because people have asked me about it. Is a song called "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding?" And I remember the day I had the idea for it. I thought I couldn't believe it that I'd actually had an original idea that I hadn't. Where, where did it come from? What, what was the what was the the, well, the genesis? I, I of suppose it? It, the 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 genesis of it was was it, it was sort of funny. I was because. The, the hippie dream was sort of dying. I suppose this was about 1971, I thought of this. And the, the hippie dream was sort of dying. And and um, people were start, People who had been hippies were start, who had rediscovered alcohol, you know, and, uh, and, and were rather embarrassed that they'd, uh, you know, dabbled with this, this thing. And they were, de- you know, leave, deserting the sinking ship in droves. And I suppose the idea for the song was a, a, a you know, a diehard hippie saying to all his followers or all the people who were in his commune, you know, who are now leaving, uh, uh, well, you think I'm a, you know, I'm an old has-been, but, um, but you, what you can't deny, you know, you can't deny that, that peace, peace, love and understanding is, the, is, is what we should all be looking for, you know, and you're sniggering at it and laughing at it. But what's so funny about when it comes down to it? What's so funny about it? that was the idea for the song, and I thought, well, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a really great title. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Because because people did used to do that. Oh yeah, man, you know, do the do the peace sign, you know, right. as a you know, oh peace and love, man, mm-hmm. in this rather uh, rather sort of uh, annoying tone of voice, you know, that they'd adopt. So it was a um, it was. Uh, it, it was a sort of funny song, really. Well, it's a song about peace the most cynical pe- person yeah. can enjoy. But the but the surprising thing, looking back now from from this distance, is that I can remember also having a very mature thought, which when I think back to how I was in those days, <laughs> I didn't have a single mature thought, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, going for me at all but in this case I did and that was not to mess it up 
by trying to explain about an old hippie, you know, and, I, you know, I'm just an old hippie. Da, 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 da. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? I thought, no, 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 this is a really, really good idea. Don't Just let the title do the work for you and, and write a really simple verse. Doesn't matter if it's cliches about walking the wicked world, searching for light in the darkness, you know, and all that old nonsense. It doesn't matter. It'll... It, the title is really strong. The tune is strong. Don't mess it up, you know, with some of your clever, clever nonsense. That is an amazingly mature thing to do. And uh, and the result is that that song has been covered by I don't know how many people. Uh, it's it's um, It almost feels like I, I really have had, had nothing to do with it. Um, it because every, everybody knows. It's never actually been a hit, but everybody knows that song. Can you play it for us now? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I tend to do it in this sort of slow tempo, but once again, you know, sorry, I'm sorry about my croaky, croaky voice, but I'll do my best. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light In the darkness of insanity I ask myself Is all hope lost? Is there only pain? And misery And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding Ooh, What's so funny about peace, love I walk on through troubled times. My, my spirit gets so downhearted sometimes. Where are the strong? Who are the trusted? And where is the harmony? And each time I feel it slipping away, it just makes me want to cry. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding?
Beautiful. When you you tripped over one word, you're probably expecting the crowd just to rise up and sing it back to you. <laughs> um, yes, they've come to your rescue. Uh, it had a huge effect on your career long after you wrote it, which is it. It made you financially independent. I suppose. Can you tell that story? Uh, I've, I think you're probably referring to um, uh, the Bodyguard mm-hmm. record. Yeah. It um, that that was a real a real stroke of luck. Yes, I I was in the I was in the middle of trying to figure out quite a lot of things. Really, I, I mean, my career as a sort of pop star was over. You know, I wasn't young anymore. I'd, and and you can sort of tell. Because, I suppose because I'd been a record producer as well, um, and sort of yucked it up in the in the uh, boardroom, you know, with, a, with people, you know, the people at the record company, as well as being a, an artiste myself, I'd seen both sides of it. Um, I was very aware of, of uh, when, when, the, when pub, you know, the signs that the public had got tired of my, my act, you know, because I was tired of it as well. It, was, it, it, it seemed really exhausted and I was... You know, I was in drinking and all, all that, all those cliches. I was, I was, I was drinking quite heavily and all that. And I was just e- exhausted. I didn't like my records and you know what I was doing. Anyway, I got myself, I got myself sort of cleaned up, and then I started when my head cleared. You know, I started to think, well, how right? How can I uh, move things along now? Because I'm going to get older, and I don't feel like I've done anything really, really good yet. That I want to be able to have, say I've written at, at least half a dozen really, really good songs, and I don't think I have yet. I think I've got it in me too, but but the drink and the late nights and all the rest of it have taken their toll, and that's spoilt a lot of, of stuff. So I've got. I'm now. I'm going to de- develop a new act, you know, and 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 so I did, and I came up with this pretty good record. Of best record I'd made for a while called um, The Impossible Bird. I made it on a real shoestring budget with a lot of, called in a lot of favors. And I was, you know, I, even so, I was effectively broke. And all of a sudden, uh, I got, I knew that they were going to use this song in a movie. And uh, I was pleased, you know, there'd be a few, a few dollars in it. And 
No, not bad, actually. A nice payday, a few grand. And uh, it's come out and it's sold. And Curtis Steigers, who, you know, was a big pop star then, he, uh, he'd recorded this song, Peace, Love and Understanding. Uh, and this movie came out. It was a big hit. And all of a sudden, it's on. The, there's a soundtrack album and it sold 3 million, 4 million, 5 million. And when it sold about 8 million, I thought I'd better get in touch with old Curtis, you know, and say, <laughs> what happened? You know, I mean, th- you know, thanks very much. I, I definitely owe you a drink here. Um, as far as I know, I've never actually seen the film. Uh, I've, I feel as if I have, because I've tried to watch it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I'm not even sure if it's actually in the in the film. If it is, it's playing on a car radio somewhere in the mm-hmm. background. But anyway, it's it's on the soundtrack record, which I think ended up selling forty million. Or it did eight million. That was just early days. It mm-hmm. went up and up and up and up until even though I got I don't know I don't even know how much less than a cent. You know I don't know how what my my share was, but it was after it goes up there you know, to those quantities, you do the math, as they say. Mm-hmm. And I got this succession of massive checks through and they could not have come at a better time for me because not only was I able to pay my boys, you know, who had done all this great work for me for nothing pretty much, I could pay them. I could go into the United States where I still had this fabulous audience, but, were, but they were waiting for something to happen. Um, I could go and see them, show them this new style that I, I wanted, this slightly more grown-up style I wanted to um, show them that would suit my advancing years in the pop business. Because up to that point, there weren't that many people who have advanced years in pop music. Now you can't move for them. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of them. The buggers won't get out of the way. Yeah. But then, they're, st- they're still doing everything they did when they were 23. Yeah, yeah. well, I wanted to avoid that, you know, because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is, that'll be just too in, un- undignified, you know, and preaching to the, to the converted and all that. I wanted to bring a new, younger audience along, as well as the old people, you know, because I like Johnny Cash's audience. I, I thought his audiences were fantastic. He had all age groups, so all digging it. So, but anyway, I was able, with this money, this windfall, to uh, to take the boys over to have a decent bus for us to tour in the US and to stay at decent hotels not top of the range but decent where we wouldn't get our stuff stolen you know and also to make another album on the proceeds of it uh, which also um, were, d- did well and uh, pay and off that, that was, uh, de- dig that was my uh, mood dig my mood yeah mm-hmm. and to pay off. Uh, pay off some debts, you know. And, of course, one, once people see uh, see you've got something going on, you know, then you're the, the initial windfall from the bodyguard, you spend all that, but it's suddenly there's mm-hmm. everything, everything gets, starts getting groovier for you and people start coming looking for songs. And so I got a few covers off those, those records and things. So, and, and that really allowed me to, to lift off, you know, and, and probably is the reason why I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be sitting here talking to you mm-hmm. today. I want to ask you a little bit about producing because as you became well-known as a songwriter and 
uh, with Brinsley Schwartz and then with Rockpile, you you became the in-house producer at Stiff. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, the most famously you worked with Elvis Costello and Graham Parker. I don't know what in what order you worked with them, who you worked with first. Um, tell me first about how did... How did you work with Graham Parker? How did you? Well, Graham, yeah. The, well, when Graham formed his group, the Rumor, they they was formed first. First of all, he was managed by an ex manager of the group that I'd been, Brinsley Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had two members of Brinsley Schwartz in in the group. Plus, um, uh, the other guitar player had been had had worked for us. So he was he used to be a. He, he was a roadie for, for the Brinsleys for quite a long while and, and a very good friend of the band, mm-hmm. Martin Belmont. Um, but I was really pleased because I thought Graham was so good. And uh, What was it about his songs that you liked so much at first? Well, they they they, they sounded really mature. You know, they, they were really mature songs and they were, you know, he clearly been listening to really good stuff. You could see his influences and things, but... He had these, you know, really great influences, I thought, because they were the same influences <laughs> as I had, you know. So, of course, I thought he was, he had excellent taste. <laughs> but uh, they were, they were a very, they were very good musicians. They had a great rhythm section as well, uh, Steve Golding and, and uh, Andy Bodnar, who I got to play on a few of my records as well. And then I think after that, I think Elvis... Costello came next. Mm-hmm. He he uh, he was signed to Stiff originally as a writer, um, but uh, after they listened to his tape in depth, you know, they said, "Well, actually, this guy's a bit—he's a bit more fantastic than that." Mm-hmm. So, I did got, you think that as well? When you were- no, I didn't really. I knew him. I I I knew him. Declan. I I knew him as as Declan McManus. And I, I did know him uh, because he used to come and see Brinsley Schwartz. Whenever we played in Liverpool, uh, he used to, uh, or up the northwest of England, he would come along and we noticed him because he looked so unusual. One day, actually, we were, we were playing at the Cavern Club, um, where famously the Beatles started out. We were, we were playing at the Cavern. And we were having a drink in the pub across the road. Both are gone now, of course, the, both the Cavern and the pub, the, the uh, Grapes, I think it was called, um, across the road uh, before our show. And uh, in came this fellow. I thought, I said, look, there's that, there's that guy who comes to see us play. I'm going to go and buy him a drink. You know, I think probably it's a time, you know. And uh, he, he says that he approached me at the bar and bought me a drink. But I, I don't know. But either way, that's where we met for the first time. And uh, he had a, 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 a group in the pub rock scene that was going on in, uh, in London at that time. The Brinsleys were in and Graham and the Rumour. And, uh, well, Graham sort of was in it. They were a bit too good for that, really. But Dire Straits actually were a pub rock band as mm-hmm. well. Um, where are they now? I have oh, no, no idea. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I got, I got the job to start with. I was definitely in charge, you know, look here, kid, you know, uh, you do this and do that. And on his first album, that's the one and only record I did with Elvis. I did five or six albums, I can't remember now. But that was the one and only one where nominally I was in I was in charge, you know. I suppose I had the last word, but it really didn't take long before I realised that he was 
really was something else. And I'd be very foolish to override him. You know, sometimes he'd come up with these really kind of crackpot ideas, you know, and I'd say, no, 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 no. And then I, as I was about to say no, I suddenly found it turning into yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and next thing I know, I was tugging my uh, forelock, as they say, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying, good morning, Mr. Costello. What would you like to do today? <laughs> and uh, so our, our, ro- our roles reversed. I mean, I was very much... You know, he 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 called the shots, and I and I enabled him to to uh, to do it. We'll be right back with more from Nick Lowe after the break. We're back with the rest of Bruce's interview with Nick Lowe. I want to talk more about songwriting. So, can we hear another new song? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You played a beautiful song called Blue on Blue. Oh, I can do that. That was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. I okay. Don't... I'd love to hear that. Okay. Okay. Here we go. in a song for you You're like a meal you run me through I call you blue on blue Blue on blue You're only happy when you see me cry I ought to leave but how can I Tie to blue on Kisses my one true desire I long each waking hour for you Blue on blue I've got a message in a song for you I call you blue on blue Like a meal you 
Can you tell me about the writing of that song? I can't really, no. I just sort of made it up one day. I was on holiday in Italy and just sort of was sitting around in the in the heat, <laughs> in the dark, in the one afternoon, and just messing around with the guitar. And that, you know, simple little chord, chord figure came came out but it, i seemed to be able to get it to roll into the the other parts you know that that was it will go in and out of time mm-hmm. you never kind of know what key it's in either it sort of starts off in one key and it sort of changes into another and then changes back again and uh and this this, this sort of rolling thing i thought was quite interesting and and i thought blue on blue is, is a pretty good title which i kept on i was making noises to start with like you do blue blue blue, blue you know and it turns into you find yourself saying blue on blue and then and then you'll think what are you saying blue on blue that's pretty actually pretty good Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it it just sort of felt right. And it's funny you mentioned the rolling in that song. When you go into the, I guess it's a bridge part. There's this um, tension until you go back into the kind of the. I, the I, I'm I'm ever so pleased that you 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 make a comment like that. Nothing cheers me up more than mm-hmm. to hear. <laughs> well, it's almost a, it's it's almost a little nervous. I get a little nervous in the bridge waiting for it to come back and then it loops in i think you just do the second half of the chord changes at yes, that point don't that's you that's right yes and yeah just this huge to... relief comes <laughs> yes. over me when i'm listening to that and thank god he's back it's also one of those uh, it's one of those chord progressions it could just go on forever yeah yes it's, it's just, there's it, there's it, nothing very yeah. original about it at all except the way that it, that it, it, it the structure mm-hmm. takes it well, it feels like it's still going. I always think some Van Morrison songs are like that. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's going all the time. We just dip in and listen to three minutes of it, and then we dip out. But it's still going, you know, even now. Well, I, I, I must say it's a, it's a song that I, I really, really like doing, and and, um, uh, and, and especially doing with the, um, the straitjackets. They, they, they've brought it, brought it up, you know, and it's, it sounds really cool when they do it. You've been very generous. There are two things I do want to ask you about before you go. We talked about country music earlier and your great love for country music. You then married into country music royalty. Uh, What was it like, this is the music you loved, and then suddenly June Carter is your mother-in-law and Johnny Cash is your, I guess, your Mm. stepfather-in-law. What was that like? It was... It was unbelievably great. <laughs> I couldn't believe my luck, even though um, I mean they were so they were so kind to me. But the, both both of them, Johnny and June, I, I absolutely adored them. But still, it was Johnny Cash. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I used to, every time I met him, there was a, a good fifteen minutes uh, when I was with him that I could barely speak because. He was so charismatic, it almost sucked the air out of the, out of the room. The, the only other person I've met like that was um, was was Solomon Burke, but John um, had this effect on me every time I, I'd meet him. Until you know, as I say, about ten or fifteen minutes had passed, and then he was such a lovely guy. I've got you know tons of stories I, wow. I, I could tell uh, um, about him, including him 
the time that he and June came to stay with me and Carleen in, uh, when we lived in Shepherd's Bush, which is now quite a smart part of London, mm. but back then was funky. You know, it was dead funky. It was an Irish part of town. And, of course, the Irish loved John and June. And, uh, and John wouldn't go anywhere out without being dressed up as Johnny Cash. You know, he didn't know, there was no, no uh, sweats and uh, baseball mm-hmm. cap pulled down low or anything like that. He had the black frock coat, the boots and everything. He was, hi, I'm Johnny Cash, you know. And walking out in Shepherd's Bush with, Ju- with him and June in a sort of mink coat with a mink hat on and some incredible jeweled brooch, you know, and saying hi to everyone. Oh, my God, it was terrific. Mm-hmm so funny and and cheered everybody up you know all these irish people say ah oh, johnny what about you you know shouting at him it was great and uh, and getting up in the morning we had a we had a, a nice little house i mean it's, it was a funky little house then but now it's probably the house is probably worth about four million mm-hmm. <laughs> because the area's gone because right johnny up. cash stayed there and that's... johnny cash it actually belonged to um tony visconti i bought it from tony oh, visconti okay. he used to live there and did you ever t- uh, did you ever talk music with Johnny Cash? Yes, I was. Go- that's what I was going to say actually, because um, he he uh, he liked nothing better, when, especially in, in uh, this house of ours in in in, uh, in Shepherd's Bush. I can remember on occasion when he was such a music fan, and uh, we'd open a bottle of wine and and you know have a few glasses of wine, and we get start playing record. He, he played records to me. He, he played me stuff. I'd, he turned me on to things like Ferlin Husky and uh, um, uh, Johnny Horton, who was a, who was a good friend of him. The, the, you know, he played me fantastic stuff and he was like a fan, you know, he'd, oh, listen to this one, listen to this one, you know, and trying to, couldn't quite get in the groove, especially after he'd had three or four glasses of wine, you know, mm-hmm. it goes, grr, grr, you know, scratching the record. Um, Oh, this is fantastic! This is great! You know, he just just like a music fan does, and you'd forget that he's, it's Johnny Cash, and you're listening to records with with John. Now, I, I mean, I just think it's just such a fantastic memory, you know. But back then, I t- sort of took it for granted. Can't I can't believe that I did? But he he was the super super guy, and and um, and I I still miss him. I still do. Think about him all the time, and June. Uh, yeah, and wonderful. What was, she, what was she like? Oh, just beautiful, funny, kind. Never a sort of a bottomless well of patience mm-hmm. <laughs> she was with, mm-hmm. especially with John, who was quite a ha- could could be quite a handful at a time. I never saw him when he was mean, you know, and I believe he, he was mean. I never ever saw him mean but i saw him when he was out of sorts sometimes you know but he he um he was always really funny and mm-hmm. lovely that's a scary father-in-law well yeah Lots i suppose scary father-in-law uh, i suppose he was yeah i suppose he was one more story which i've read about uh but it talks about this collision between sort of the world you inhabited with rock pile and brinsley schwartz and the much bigger world which is I don't know if it was the first time, but the time you met Keith Richards, which, <laughs> which I've read about and just seems completely ridiculous to me. So could you tell a little bit of that well, story? Well, it was, was ridiculous. Yes, it was when um, the Rockpile really were, we, we coulda, 
we coulda, shoulda, woulda made it. You know, we were really poised to be very successful indeed. But we were we were inherently a lazy band. Played this we, basically, we played the same set for three glorious years. You know, mm-hmm. and, but it was those things that made people like us in a way. The fact they could see we were having such a laugh. You know, we didn't take it seriously. You know, we were having such a great time. We had a little run of shows at the bottom line, the much-loved and lamented bottom line. And we were playing there in the, in the middle of this little run of shows. It was the night after Keith got out of jail in Canada. And um, for some reason, this room... We should, went, we should explain. I think it was heroin possession or some drug thing. I couldn't border, possibly yeah. comment on that. Oh, okay. Something, you know, that Keith had got up to. I think it was something like oh. that, but... but We'll phone the RCMP. See what we can. <laughs> I think it's determined. Pretty well documented, yeah. anyway. But uh, uh, anyway, he got out of jail, and for some reason, he decided to come and see Rockpile. Why I know not. And it was I the day after he got. It out It was of the day after he got out of jail. I, I'm sure I can think of plenty of things <laughs> I'd rather do it's after nice, I got out nice of a Canadian you, jail. You, he, you got him through that experience. <laughs> I'd like to think I helped. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I, we, well, of course, he couldn't believe it. You know, that he'd, he'd want to come. We heard this rumor, you know, and we were in the little cramped dressing rooms that were at the back, uh, the back of the um, the bottom line, and in walked Barbara Sharon, a well-known um, a publicist and, and writer at that time. Anyway, she walked into the dressing room. She said, "I'm here." She says, "I'm here with Keith." And we'd heard, we'd sort of heard as a bit of a rumpus out in the audience, you know. They were very, very excitable audience because they knew what they were getting. But when this word went round that Keith Richard was coming down, I mean, you could feel it coming through the walls, you know. People were so excited. Anyway, Keith, she said, can I bring him, you know, can he come and play, do you think? And we said, well, of course he can, yeah. But the funny thing was that we were all keen except for Edmunds. Because Edmonds had been in his the top band in Wales in the 1960s, like 1961-60. So they're in the top band in Wales. And uh, along comes this band from London to do a little tour with them through the Welsh to through the Welsh Valleys. And uh, and they're doing the same sort of music, Chuck Berry music, you know. And it's it's the Stones. And uh, and Edmonds said, Oh, they were rubbish, you know. So Edmonds wasn't pleased, and he was all for saying, "Oh no, I don't want him in here. No, no, tell him to <laughs> tell him to clear off." And we were, you know, really keen. It was almost impossible not to be carried along with this. It was overpowering, you know, the audience expectation. So you're on stage. You're looking back and forth at the two of them, hoping it's not a fight, or well, they just go. Uh, well, uh, I don't think Keith. Uh, uh, could care less, you know, but <laughs> but Edmunds just glowered at him all night, you know. But he started, you know, he, uh, he got on stage, he started turning up it, the, his, the wrong amp, you know, we had our amps on stage, so quite squ- squashed. And I suddenly found my, my, I was playing bass, you know, and then suddenly that bass got louder and louder and louder and then I thought, what the hell's happening here? You know, and then t- super twangy, you know, twang, 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 and then it sounded really deep, like reggae basses, and boom, boom, boom. And I look around, and Keith is trying to adjust his own guitar, but he's on my knobs, <laughs> you know, adjusting my amp. So it was. He a, couldn't it understand was a why fiasco. his wasn't getting louder. Or... Huh? 
He couldn't understand his. Yeah, he couldn't understand why he was loud, and he was turning everything up. You know, so it was. um, I mean, he he tried to stay on with us, you know, because we just pressed on. You know, we tried to get him off. You know, the enemy. Right, thank you, (laughs) Keith Richards. Thank you, Keith. You know, and he wasn't going anywhere. You know, he just stood there, sort of swaying (laughs) backwards and forwards, and. And uh, did he know it, any of your songs? Could he? He, he had a go. Yeah, yeah, he had a go, but it was it was really really hopeless. And and the and it got old pretty quick. You know, it, you you could tell that the 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 audience weren't dig, digging it nearly as much as they were when he stepped on the how, stage. How many songs did he did he stay for? I think about three, maybe maybe four. And then we had a we had a tour manager who had a real sort of English sort of manner, sort of uh, oh oh really is that oh could I possibly uh, could do you mind awfully if I he had he was very very you know he had that corny English thing you know going Jeeves sort of thing, and he eventually I won't tell you what Edmonds actually said to call him out and 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 tell him and get um, Keith off, but it wasn't very polite. And uh, there was this great sight of our, our tour manager, Des, sort of taking him gently by the arm, you know, and just leading him, to, whilst taking his guitar off him and putting it, you know, mm-hmm. putting it away and just leading him gently off the stage, where, which, which he, you know, which I'm sure he was quite pleased to, mm-hmm. to have gone. Was he but there they, the crowd, I seem to remember the crowd was actually not too bad. I mean, they, they, they I think they realised that he wasn't really in any condition to mm-hmm. do it, but... They'd given him a nice clap, but it was, it was, sort of, it was such a weird night. And, and have you seen him since? Did Keith? You, yes. No. <laughs> was, he there, was he there when you he finished? Write, was he, he did he flowers. just, did he? No. He wasn't the, backstage? Uh, no. Oh, no. He'd, he'd, he'd gone by the time, by the time we, we got off. Yeah. No, I, I, that didn't surprise me at all. It was, you know, it was quite beastly in there. And, the, and of course, the, the entourage that he had with him were, you know, Taking mm-hmm. up quite a lot of room. Mm-hmm. But Dave Edmonds was pretty happy. <laughs> he was delighted, yeah. Oh, boy, we had a laugh about that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it, it, it was a, it, a great, it was one of those things, it was a great experience in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So it had a, it was a, been a good story. Thank you so much for everything. Well, I've, I've taken it, so much of your time. Uh, it, it's been really generous it's been, playing. It's been a pleasure. Thank I you. hope so. Thank you for having me. I hope so. Well, thank you. Thanks to Nick Lowe for playing for us and talking to Bruce about his creative process and career. Be sure to check out brokenrecordpodcast.com for a playlist full of Nick Lowe's songs, as well as some of our favorite songs that he's produced over the years. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, Leo Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.